It is 1961. Killer is a strong word. And as you sit at the breakfast table on the farm, looking out over the fields with the sheep and the cows, it's hard to imagine how one little movement could have changed so much. Go back just nine years and you're in school. The fancy Loretto boarding school in Musselburgh, no less. Christ knows why. Your father always told you you'd work on the farm as soon as you were old enough. So a fancy education, in order to run a farm near Churnside, didn't really seem necessary. Not least because you were rank rotten at school. Lessons were boring, the teachers were, at best, strict and, at worst, predatory. And all you ever enjoyed was playing cricket out in the lawns. Ironically, being on the farm was your happy place. You were the son of a Borders farmer, and you would become a Borders farmer. You were never happier than when you were among the 1,250 acres, jumping on a tractor to help out at a harvest, or cutting about in your father's Alvis Speed 20, where they could barely see you over the steering wheel. When you were pulled out of school at 16, after both your uncle and grandfather passed away, you were secretly delighted. Not to have lost your family, obviously, but to get away from that school and back home? Hell yeah. And now here you are, nearly ten years later at the same kitchen table where they told you you weren't going back to school. You replay it all again in your head. The cry of the engines, the squeal of the tyres, the bang of tyre on bodywork, the crunching, the impact, the screaming. Did you really kill all of those people? This is Scotland, a podcast about history and where we made it. I'm Michael Park. It is 1956. Ever since you met Ian at a young farmers meeting in Ednam, you'd had this feeling. Not only that you made a friend for life, but that this guy was going to change your life somehow. Ian Scott Watson was a boy racer. Not in the sense that he rode around in a lowered Vauxhall Corsa with a cheap plastic body kit, but in the sense that he raced cars with the Berwick and District Motor Club. You follow him everywhere, like a disciple to saloon racing. Ian races anything that's put in front of him, and after a while, you start helping him out, working as a mechanic on his cars. One time you go with him to Winfield, where they held the first ever Scottish motorsport meeting, to see the legendary drivers of Ecurie Cos, the Scottish stable, testing their high-performance Jaguars. But today is 16th of June 1956. There are no Ecurie Cos drivers here, at the Aberdeen and District Motor Club's meeting at Crimmond. Ecurie Agricole are here in force, though, with Ian in the lead car, while you've been moved up from pit crew to sit behind the wheel of a DKW Sonderklasse, which kind of looks like a Volkswagen Beetle that's been pushed through a sieve. It's your first event, but your breathing is slow. Even. Your heartbeat is still. You were made for this. You come last, but your time's in a car that had 500 brake horsepower less than most of its competitors. Impress everybody and your invite to join the newly reformed Border Reavers racing team 
basically in the post. If you enjoy Scotland and you fancy supporting us, please leave us a five-star review on Spotify or on any of your favourite podcast apps. It really helps, and if you can leave a review, please do that. And why not follow us on social media? We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and basically anywhere that you find your favourite podcasts. Thanks very much. Let's get back to the show. Nobody can touch the Reavers named after the famed band of raiders who rustled their way around the borderlands of Scotland and England for three centuries. In your first race abroad, at the famous Spa-Francorchamps circuit in Belgium, you mangled the competition in a Lotus Elite, beaten only by a man called Colin Chapman, the owner and founder of Lotus itself. That performance sticks in the mind. Things are really starting to move quickly for you. The Reavers enter the Le Mans 24-hour race in 1959 and you blow people's minds as you're part of a team that came second in class and 10th overall in another Lotus Elite. The owner of the company, Colin Chapman, had already taken you into the formulas of single-seater racing as a stand-in for John Surtees, who had disappeared to do some serious TT racing on the Isle of Man. But something grander lay in store for Jim Clark, the shy farmer from Berwickshire. It all seems like a dream. Suddenly, you're on the Formula One grid for the 1960 Dutch Grand Prix in Zandvoort, in amongst names like Hill, Von Trips, Brabham, the other Hill. You retire 42 laps into the 75-lap race after a transmission failure. But given that only 8 of the 21 starters made it to the end, you'll take it. Two fifth places in Belgium and France follow, before a last place finish around the 5km circuit of Silverstone, thanks to a broken suspension, which meant you could only run at a reduced speed anyway. You finish 7 laps behind the winner Jack Brabham, but my word, do you finish. You see... The cars that you and the rest of the field are driving bear very little relation to the Formula 1 cars that we might recognise today. The Lotus 18 that you're competing in is a huge step up from the previous model, but it's still closer to a go-kart that produces 239 brake horsepower with a load of lightweight metal panels strapped to a metal tube frame. It's like driving a cigar tube at 180 miles an hour, with no power steering. Drivers die at a rate of three or four per season. It's accepted. The helmet you wear is made of cork. You're sitting centimetres away from the car's fuel tank. And your suit isn't fireproof. But that's not a problem. Since there aren't any seatbelts, most drivers prefer to be thrown out of the car in a crash so that they're not nearby when the inferno starts. All of this, it's... It's a far cry from the farm. It's even a far cry from those days driving bulky touring cars. But you're Jim Clark. You're a natural. Next time out in Portugal, you qualify eighth, but finish on the podium, taking third place, five seconds ahead of German nobleman and Ferrari driver Wolfgang von Trips. Those eight points from six races are enough to get you tenth place in a 27-person championship. A flashbulb lifts you out of the dream. 
another photographer creeps up to the window to try and get a picture. That Portuguese podium seems so far away. Sat alone at this table, reliving that moment over and over. That famous parabolica, the pressure on the brake pedal, bodywork on bodywork, the screams piercing the roar of the engines. The almighty crunch as that bright red car lands back on top of yours. You stagger from the car. It is September 10th, 1961. The day of the Italian Grand Prix at the Autodromo Nazionale di Monza. Wolfgang von Tripps, Ferrari's world champion in waiting. The man who only needed to finish second in the race to secure the title is lying at the side of the track. In overtaking you, he has moved over and your wheel has become entangled with his. You don't know it yet as you struggle to take in the scene around you, but Von Tripps's car has launched up the bank and into a group of spectators with their noses pressed against the safety fencing, trying to get a good look at their Scuderia Ferrari heroes. Fifteen of them would never get to go home. Von Tripps himself was thrown from the car in mid-air. The injuries he sustained when he hit the ground were fatal. You make your way back to the pits, shaken to your very core. The race goes on. No announcement is made to the rest of the crowd. Organisers will later say that this is to ensure that the ambulances could access the circuit and to stop people blocking the roads. You have your doubts. This is just the latest in a series of accidents involving spectators, including a crash at the 1955 Le Mans 24 Hours, which had killed 84 people. Among the calls for motor racing to be banned completely were reports that you had done something to deliberately harm Von Tripps, to put him out of the race, or worse. With the deaths of the spectators, there was a clamour for someone to blame, Someone to answer for these senseless deaths. And since you were the one left alive, walking away physically unharmed, you're it. Your car is impounded, pending a full police investigation, and you're hounded in the Italian press who had all but anointed Von Tripps as a champion, although his Ferrari teammate Phil Hill went on to win the championship by default. Not that it matters. And now here you are, surrounded by the press in your own home, your sanctuary, where you just come to tend your cattle and your sheep. Suddenly, Formula One isn't just a well-paying hobby, it's life and death. So you go back to the track for the next season, with those spectators' deaths weighing on your shoulders, even though you're cleared of any wrongdoing by the authorities. You finish second in the championship in 1962. Take your first crown in 63. Your second in 1965. And even find time to win the British Touring Car Championship, Formula 2, the Tasman Series and even the Indianapolis 500, one of the most famous motor races in the world. You win more Grand Prix and take more pole positions than any other driver up until that point. You let your driving do the talking. You're not flash. You're not too much of a playboy. 
Although you do move to Paris to avoid paying British taxes, which is a bit naughty. You're beloved in the paddock, and beloved in your home nation, despite the whole not paying taxes thing. The quiet farmer from Berwickshire is a multiple world champion, and 1968 is the year that you're going to prove to everyone just how good you actually are. At the opening Grand Prix of the season, on New Year's Day in South Africa, you take pole position, fastest lap, and beat your teammate Graham Hill home by 25 seconds. Jobs are good. Now you've just got to wait four months until the next race in Spain. No problem. Off to Australia to win the Tasman series, the closest thing fans in Australia and New Zealand got to Formula One racing for the third time. Then on to the Formula Two season to fulfil your sponsorship agreements with your tyre company Firestone. But in that first heat at the Hockenheim Ring, on 7th of April 1968, your story is going to end. The track meanders away into the forest in front of you, but you're taking it on faith that you'll find the track, since the amount of spray being thrown up in the wet conditions makes seeing where you are, let alone where you're going, very difficult indeed. Just a month after your 32nd birthday, running in 8th place, you drive off from the first corner into the forest, hunting down the cars in front of you. You never come out on the other side. A solitary marshal is there to see your last moments, as competitors squint desperately through the spray. The right rear tyre suddenly loses pressure, and as you fight with everything that you have to keep the car on the road at 170 miles per hour, it catches on something, flips four times, and smashes along with you into the trees. There's a memorial to you at Hockenheim. People still make pilgrimage there every year to pay their respects. The man they call the greatest driver ever to have lived. Forced on by the anguish of that day in 1961, determined to push every boundary, to race through the pain, every race taking you further and further away from the farm, further from the grounding that made you Jim Clark, further away from your peace. The gravestone in Churnside lists Jim Clark as a farmer first and a racing driver second, just the way he wanted it. You've been listening to Scotland. It was written and produced by me, Michael Park, and is a production of Be Quiet Media. The music for every episode of Scotland is by our very own world champ, Mitch Bain. You can check out more of his work at mitchbain.bequiet.media. You can find out more about the show and read transcripts on our website, scotlandpodcast.net, and we're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram too. Find us by searching Scotland, a Scottish history podcast. Thanks for listening. Look after one another. We'll see you next time. <laughs>